Good morning. It's good to see you all here uh, this morning, and I will uh, begin with words you have heard from me many times. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 18 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from verses 21 through 35. Matthew 18, verses uh, 21 through 35. So it occurred to me couple weeks ago, we only have 10 more chapters left in Matthew, which means we should finish by 2027 or so. So that's good. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Listen to this conversation between Peter and Jesus. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him, if you can believe it, 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that happened. Then the master called that servant in, you wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could, should pay back all he owed, which means forever. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I have a warning for you. This morning and next week, we are going to be walking through a minefield. Uh, There are explosive passages in the Gospel of Matthew that are ahead of us. Today's topic is forgiveness And next week's topic is, we're going to talk about what Jesus said in Matthew 19 about divorce. My goal in these two weeks is to speak plainly about these difficult issues without trampling through tender places in your mind and your heart and your conscience. This is a unique parable in the Gospel of Matthew. It's one of the most familiar parables that Jesus told. And the focus of this parable is on the why of forgiveness. Why followers of Jesus are forgiving people. 
just to orient us again where we are here in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew organized his material, as you remember, around five teaching units, five sermons from the Lord Jesus. There's the, the Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter 5 through 7 that reminds us or that establishes, uh, testifies to the authority of the Lord Jesus to interpret God's word. And he interprets the law of Moses there by bringing out some of its um, uh, eternal truths. And then once his, his authority as a teacher is established, in chapters 8 and 9, following that, there are these scenes, accounts, uh, uh, where Jesus performs miracles that establish his authority, not just over the law of Moses, but over disease and over death and over demons. Then in chapter 10, the second sermon is the sermon on mission, where Jesus sends his disciples out, and we learn some of the things that we need to know in following Jesus and the mission he gave us. In chapter 13 is the Sermon of Parables, where Jesus says that the kingdom is going to unfold in a way that not many people would expect. It's going to come in a slightly different way, a significantly different way than people would expect. And then here, Matthew 18, the fourth section of teaching, Jesus talks about how we as brothers and sisters in this new fellowship that he has announced in Matthew 16, the church, how we as brothers and sisters relate to one another. And you know what we need to know how to do? Forgive. If you're going to be a member of a church of which I am a member, you're going to need to know how to forgive. I know, Jesus said, I know he said in Matthew chapter 5 that we would be known by our love and our love for one another would be a testimony to the fact that we're genuinely his disciples, but we're, we're aspiring to that. We aspire to that, but along the way, we provoke one another. We needle one another. We hurt, offend, um, belittle one another. I want you to think for a minute about the last time that you had to forgive someone or the last time you had to ask someone for forgiveness. It probably wasn't that long ago, and that person may be sitting very close to you at this moment in time. Don't elbow them or look at them. That's just, we'll just pretend. Think about the last person that you had to forgive or the last person you had to ask for forgiveness. Healthy families, healthy families say three things a lot. They say a lot, I love you, I'm sorry, and I forgive you. That's true of healthy families. It's true of healthy churches. Think for a minute. Think for a minute. Maybe there's some of you in this room, you're really struggling because there's someone that comes to mind that you are, need to forgive, but you're really having a hard time with it. Forgiveness, uh, it comes up all the time. Maybe if you couldn't think of anybody or if you can't think of someone, a recent time that you've had to forgive someone or ask somebody for forgiveness, I, one of the reasons that may be true is because most of the relationships that you have are pretty shallow and, and not very intimate. Forgiveness is a topic. It's so important. I think, I, this is my aspiration. I don't know if I've met this. I think healthy churches should talk about forgiveness on a regular basis at least once a year and today's the day. Hmm. 
Again, the emphasis here is on why, why followers of Jesus forgive one another. It's not so much on how, because this passage raises some questions that it doesn't answer about the reconciliation process. This is not everything that the Bible says about forgiveness and reconciliation. But the focus on the why is important. The why is so huge. The why is so weighty that it makes answering the how questions a lot easier if you wrestle with the why. Before we dig into the details, we should think about a couple of things, a couple of things we should acknowledge. Um, one of them is that when it comes to forgiveness, we are prone to looking for excuses, prone to thinking of reasons why, in this case, we don't have to forgive, or in this case, why, why this is the exception to what Jesus is talking about, my situation. I mean, this is good advice for people, but my situation is different, and I don't need to forgive the way Jesus commanded here in this passage. We're prone to looking for those exceptions. Leon Morris was a Bible teacher in Australia, and he said, we can always think of some good reason why any, in any particular case we need not forgive you'll be able to think of a reason why you don't have to. But he says, that is always in error. Jesus sent this parable in verse 35 by saying, you must forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Oh, it's a high standard. From your heart smothers some of the things that we tell ourselves about forgiveness. I'll forgive, but I won't forget or, I'll forgive him, I just don't want to have anything to do with him anymore. That fails the standard that Jesus sets down, those sentences. We should acknowledge, we often look for excuses when it comes to forgiveness. Second thing we can acknowledge before we even dig into the details here is that we are more wired, it seems like, often, for vengeance rather than forgiveness. Are you familiar with Alexander Dumas' story, The Count of Monte Cristo? Alexander Dumas wrote The Three Musketeers. He wrote The Man in the Iron Mask. He also wrote this novel called The Count of Monte Cristo. Had nothing to do with the sandwich. Um, anyway, uh, uh, I, <laughs> true confession, I am more familiar with this story because of the 2002 movie starring Jim Caviezel than I am with the actual novel. Uh, before Mel Gibson turned Jim Caviezel into Jesus, Jim Caviezel was in the Mount of uh, Monte Cristo. And uh, he plays a character, Adontis, a sailor. And, and uh, during one uh, time that he is home from his uh, sailing expeditions, his friends betray him, and he is wrongfully imprisoned for 13 years. And after 13 years, he escapes finds a treasure and goes back to his hometown and with a brilliant plan, a well-thought-out, patiently-executed plan, he gets revenge on all of the people who betrayed him. And it is a wonderful movie to watch. <laughs> Infinitely satisfying. This, this, this longing that we have, this satisfaction in that, comes from, I think, a God-given longing for justice. It's right and good to want justice. But the Bible warns us, you, outside of novels and outside of movies, very controlled environments, 
Human beings just don't have the wisdom. We don't have the knowledge. We don't have the self-control to bring about actual justice on our own. I'm not smart enough to take revenge the way I want it to be. That's why Romans tells us to leave it into God's hands. Now, let's, let's walk through the text. Even as we think about those things, how prone we are to not do what Jesus says, let's walk through the text. We're going to do it very plainly. We're going to just uh, we're going to talk about Peter's question for a minute. Then we're going to talk about the three scenes of the parable. Then we're going to talk about Jesus' application. And along the way, what I want to do is uh, talk about what's happening in the, the parable and in Matthew. And then we'll think about some of the themes that emerge from it. What is Jesus pointing to? And then we also want to think along the way of, about how this applies to our practice of forgiveness. So let's start with Peter's question, shall we? Peter's question. Jesus has just told a story in which reconciliation does not happen, and it prompts Peter to ask a question. He says, Lord, how many times should I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And Peter is being astoundingly generous. Uh, he's learning. He's learning some things from Jesus, and he's being generous. The reason he's being generous is because the rabbinical teaching of the day said that you only had to forgive three times. Three times, and the fourth time someone sins against you, you don't have to forgive. So Peter is being amazingly generous. There's a couple things to note about the question that Peter asked. On the one hand, you, you can see it's still a community question. This is about how brothers and sisters relate to one another because he says it explicitly, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? This is for us. This is in our interpersonal relationships. What Jesus teaches here does not erase the church discipline that he's just described in Matthew 18. It doesn't undo a government's responsibility to punish wrongdoers. It doesn't even undo what Jesus is going to say in chapter 19 about divorce. This is a passage for church business meetings. It's a passage for Sunday school classes, for growth groups, for your Awana club. It's a passage for your family, interpersonal relationships. The other thing I notice about Peter's question, this is intriguing to me, is that Peter makes no reference at all to apologies, a, an apology, a confession. He makes no reference at all to repentance in his question. He just says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Where's the apology? Where's the repentance? Where's the confession? It's not in this question at all. It's in the context um, Look up at Matthew 18, 15. Look what he says. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. If they listen to you, there's the apology there. There's the repentance, the confession in that sentence, that phrase. It's also in Matthew, I think it's in the parable that Jesus told. Remember when the servants are brought before the, the, the ones to whom they owe money? Both of them say, be patient with me, I will pay you back. They acknowledge that they've done something wrong. There's, there's this uh, a confession, repentance, apology there. But there's not in Peter's question. 
It's in a parallel passage. Look at Luke chapter 17, 3 and 4. This will show up here, this parallel passage. If your brother or sister... That's interesting. Well, so watch yourselves. Watch yourselves before you read the scripture wrong. Watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. So there's the repentance in Luke 17. It's not in this passage. The Bible speaks about it in other places too. Think about Psalm 51, David's repentance in Psalm 51, this beautiful poetic expression of his sorrow, his grief over his sin. The Bible knows about weak apologies. In Malachi chapter 2, the men in Israel are divorcing their wives and marrying younger foreign women. We have this crass term in our culture for what they're doing in Malachi 2. We use the term trophy wives. The men of Israel are, are, are divorcing their wives and marrying trophy wives. And then they're going to the temple and they're crying because God won't listen to them. They're crying these crocodile tears. Why won't God help us? Why won't he listen? And the prophet will have nothing to do with their crocodile tears. He's not going to put up with that. No, no, no. So the Bible knows about the importance of confession and apologies and repentance, and it knows about false apologies. It's not mentioned here, though, at all in this passage. Remember, this is the why, not necessarily the how, not all the details of the how. And I think and maybe one of the reasons it's not here, too, is to help us avoid the temptation to think that if someone doesn't apologize the right way or holy or to our satisfaction that they don't mean it and we don't have to forgive them. Remember, we're always looking for excuses to not forgive. Since I raised the question, I'll just mention it in passing. What do you do? What do you do in the time between the offense and the repentance? What do you, if you're the offended person, what do you do? Matthew 18, 15 tells us you go and point out their fault. Or, and also, you wait patiently. Don't cultivate bitterness. Don't gossip. Don't go tell everyone how this person has hurt you. Put yourself in a position to forgive. Get ready to forgive. Remind yourself that you're longing and looking forward to the opportunity to forgive. Don't rehearse the offense over and over and over and over again in your mind. You're sowing seeds of bitterness. I have a question for Peter. Peter has a question. I have a, Peter, a question for Peter. My question for Peter is this. Peter, if you're counting how many times you have to forgive, have you actually forgiven? If you've got a notebook where you're writing these things down, that's number four. That's number five. Have you actually forgiven? Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 about what love does? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Have you actually forgiven if you're keeping track? I think Jesus might appreciate that question because his answer, he says to Peter, no, Peter, not seven times, 77 times. An unlimited number of times. Don't count, Peter. Forgiveness for followers of Jesus is unlimited. Jesus is going to tell a parable about that in and we'll get to that in just a minute. 
There's no counting. No counting. Just as an aside, some of you have a translation that says 77 times, and some of you have a translation that says 70 times seven times. Is Jesus, did Jesus say 77, or is he saying 490? It doesn't matter. You're not supposed to count either way. I think 77 is better because Jesus is comparing himself to Lamech in the Old Testament. I know some of you are already thinking about this, but in Genesis chapter 4, Lamech, one of Cain's descendants, is bragging about his ability to take vengeance on people. And look what he says. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. If Peter apologizes, if Peter forgives seven times, Jesus forgives 77 times. The difference between Genesis 4 and Matthew 18. Forgiveness is unlimited. Let's think about that in this parable that Jesus tells about this kingdom. Here's the first scene about a, pa- a, a compassionate king. Scene one, a compassionate king. Bible tells us, Jesus told this story, that there was a king once who decided to settle his accounts. There were people who owed him money, and it came time for him to collect on the debts. And there was one of his servants, an official government, uh, uh, official from the government, who uh, was dragged in. That's what the text says. He was brought to him. And I understand why he had to be dragged before the king. He had to be dragged before the king because he owed the king a bajillion dollars. That's not what your translation says. My translation says 10,000 bags of gold. Your translation might say 10,000 talents. Do you know how much that is? It's a bajillion dollars. Uh, Just for for your thinking about this, 10,000 talents. In the year 4 BC, in the year 4 BC, uh, they, they, count, they collected taxes in Galilee, the region of Galilee where Nazareth is, where Jesus uh, grew up, and Perea, Galilee and Perea, two regions right next to each other. The total taxes collected from those entire regions in 4 BC was 200 talents. And this guy owes the king 10,000 talents. It's a huge number. 10,000 is the largest number that you can say with one word in Greek. We get our uh, uh, English word myriad from this word. And a talent is the highest currency. So this is the simplest way he could say a bajillion dollars. It's an exorbitant amount of money, a colossal amount of money. The, The only reason, the only way that people think that maybe these could at least in any way be uh, uh, um, realistic is that maybe this man was responsible for collecting taxes in a very large, very wealthy area, and this is the tax total for uh, years in this this significant area. Maybe that was his responsibility. That seems to be the only way that he could possibly owe a bajillion dollars. The king decides, in response to the fact the man doesn't have the money to pay, The king decides, in keeping with the customs of the day, to sell the man and his family into slavery and to sell all of their possessions and try to get something back. Now, it's not even close. An average slave would cost about a talent. So there's a little bit, I mean, a pittance of money he's going to get back. But this is what uh, you would do with a man who had debt he could not pay. He begs. He falls to his knees Please, please, I'll pay back 
everything. Let's think for a minute, before you even think about that, about the spiritual realities in this passage. What, what's going on here? What is Jesus pointing to? Jesus is reminding us by telling us this uh, story that we have, all of us, a great debt to God. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion to Him, we have a great debt that we owe God. The Bible talks about our spiritual condition in, in various ways. It talks about our rebellion against God. Sometimes it says that we have broken God's laws. That's true. Sometimes the Bible pictures it as, as saying that we are those who have tres, uh, 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 um, crossed boundary lines. We've transgressed God's boundaries. We've gone where we, we were not allowed to go. Sometimes it talks about our rebellion against God as missing the mark or falling short of his standards. In this passage, it talks about our sin in terms of debt. God is our creator and we owe him as creatures. We have obligations to God who is our creator. And this story reminds us that we have a great obligation to God that we have not met. Don Carson uh, tells once he was teaching through the book of Genesis and he uh, uh, told about a friend of his who was a teacher in Ireland and she was, I don't know how long this ago this occurred, in, in those days that this happened, the Bible had to be taught in the Irish public schools. And this teacher, herself was a Christian, was assigned a classroom of special education students, middle school boys. And she was responsible to teach them the Bible. She was in the classroom for about 45 seconds before she realized two things. One, these boys knew nothing about the Bible and they didn't care anything about the Bible. And second thing she realized is uh, the, the curriculum she had was miserable and was never going to work. So she threw it out and walked into class on day two with a, uh, a bucket of modeling clay. And she said to her students, boys, we're going to make our own universe. And the first thing you need to do is we're going to make creatures that inhabit our universe. Here's some modeling clay for you. And the boys got their lump of clay and they started working on their creatures. And you can imagine what they looked like, these middle school boys. These, these creatures had fangs everywhere and they had six arms and just they were just hideous creatures. But um, the, the boys, they loved it. They painted them. They, 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 she had them fired so that they were, they were, they were, they were as beautiful as ugly could be. So they uh, made these creatures. Then she brought in this huge piece of paper and they put desks together and, and made a huge table. And she said, now this is the world in which your creatures are going to live. And she gave them markers and paint and, and pencils and they drew the, a map of their world. And they put mountains and rivers and, and nations and, and made this wonderful world for the creatures uh, to live in. I'm sure there was a lot of lava too in this. Then she said, okay, boys, we're going to put our creatures in the world uh, that you made. We need to come up with some rules for these creatures to follow. And they did. Each of the creatures had their assigned piece of land, and they made rules for what it was like to, to if you wanted to go visit another creature's land, uh, uh, territory, there were rules about that. And there were rules about how they were going to use resources and rules about how they had to treat their fellow creatures. Then she said, when it was all done, she said, okay, boys, now I want you to use your imagination. What are you going to do if your creatures don't keep the rules? 
Without missing a beat, the boys said, we're going to smash them. We're going to break them apart and, and destroy them. She said, why? And, and, and the boys said, well, we made them. We made the place they live. We made the rules. And if they don't keep the rules, we can do with them what they want. We're going to smash them. We're going to get rid of them. It's not okay for them not to follow the rules that we make. And you hear that and you think to yourself, how did those middle school boys learn to be such good theologians? Where'd they learn their doctrine? You have obligations to the God who made you that you have not kept. And if you're going to understand what forgiveness is, you have to remember this. The Bible speaks to us all the time about how we have fallen short of God's standards. We read it. Ed did from Romans chapter 3. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I am guilty of dishonoring God. I have not honored him as I should. And I have mistreated my fellow creatures. I have lied and I have stolen. I have been envious and covetous. I have been selfish. I have shouted. I have been unforgiving. I have belittled. Everybody in this room knows I have been sarcastic and mean. I have not fulfilled the obligations that I owe to God as my creator, and I stand guilty before him. I owe a debt to him, and what's worse, I have a debt to him that I cannot pay. Just like this servant in this story. I have no means to pay. I'm puzzled. I'm puzzled by the fact that he says in verse 26, I'll pay you back. Just be patient with me. I'll pay you back. Man, you have no hope of paying him back. Bill Gates couldn't pay him back. You, you could live 200 lifetimes and give him everything that you earned and you couldn't pay the king back what you owe him. We have this delusion we have this delusion that we are not that bad before God. We're not that bad. I mean, come on, Jesus, we're not that bad. And we have this delusion that all we need is just in our lives, just a few minor tweaks, and that will satisfy God. He might as well try to swim to Hawaii. He might as well try to take a rock in Lancaster City and throw it at the North Pole and hit it. You have no chance does this man not understand the depth of his problem? Does he not understand? I suppose more importantly, the question to ask is, do you understand the depth of your problem? The king looks at him, listens to his plea, and, and has compassion on him, verse 27. My, my translation actually says he had pity on him. It's a good, good word. That word translated pity shows up in the rest of Matthew often as compassion. It's a word that describes Jesus. Jesus is a compassionate God. And, and, and this king is, is compassionate. He, ha, this is crazy. He cancels the debt and he lets the man go free. He doesn't sell him into slavery. 
He doesn't give him another job to do to try to earn a little bit of this money. He forgives the debt and he sets him free. Compassion in this passage is the hinge in the Bible on which the plan of God to forgive swings. We read it from Romans chapter 3. God is just. And just God's Don't just forgive people because they ask for it. God has a plan. He had a plan. He has executed his plan. And his plan involves a substitute, the substitute of his own son. Someone must bear the penalty for our sin. And it is the Lord Jesus according to the plan of God. As an expression of his great love, he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He proves how much he loves us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It had to be his son. It had to be the God-man because my offense against an infinite God is worthy of infinite punishment and only an infinite Savior can pay the penalty for my sin. He died on the cross, bearing God's wrath. He rose again so that all who believe might have forgiveness in his name. If if you're here this morning and you have not turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus, then you have no hope. To be a Christian is to recognize the truth that the Bible teaches that Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins. And to be a Christian is to turn and rely upon that truth, to trust in it, to identify it as your only hope for forgiveness and for life. This message of what Jesus has done is not just, though, how you become a Christian. It's not just the door to becoming a Christian. You have to remember this because the extent of your debt and the wonder of forgiveness is the key to the why of forgiveness. You can see that more clearly as we move on to scene number two and think about the cold-hearted servant, the cold-hearted servant. So this man who's just been forgiven the bajillion dollars of debt that he owes walks out of the throne room of the king and he meets a fellow servant. Uh, One wonders, the text is not exactly, did he find him? Did he seek him out or did he just meet him? Not sure. But this guy owes, the second second servant owes the first servant, owes him a hundred Uh, My translation says silver coins, 100 denarii, your translation might say. Now, 100 denarii is not nothing. It is about four months of your salary. That's how much you would, uh, 100 denarii is how much you would make in about four months. But it's a pittance in comparison to the 10,000 talents. Ready for some math? Follow me here. There are 6,000 denarii in one talent. So how many denarii are there in 10,000 talents? 60 million. So the first servant has just been forgiven by the king 60, a debt of 60 million denarii, and here's a guy who owes him 100 denarii. And he's mad, this servant is. He's angry about the hundred denarii he's owed, and he grabs him by the, and he chokes him. It's, 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 it's so ridiculous, it's almost funny how angry he is over this debt. And, and you think to yourself, what happened? 
The second servant, almost the same wording. Be patient with me. I'll pay you back everything. No, no. Throws him into debtor's prison. What happened? What happened? How? How in the world did this happen? You know the comparison you're supposed to make, right? You're supposed to make the comparison of, uh, well, I'm supposed to make the comparison of my sin against God and how great it is. And I'm supposed to compare it to your sin against me. And I'm supposed to ask myself the question, how can I possibly withhold forgiveness against you? You, you may have sinned against me, but it's, it's merely a hundred denarii in comparison to the 10,000 talents of sin against God. Now, be careful about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is not belittling the suffering that you have endured at the hands of other people. Jesus is not saying, oh, come on, it wasn't a big deal. It didn't matter. It's not what he's doing at all. He is, he is not trying to minimize what may have been years of, of abuse and a terrible relationship. That is not what he's doing. What he is doing is he's comparing. He's comparing how other people have treated you in, to how you have been in rebellion against God. How can I possibly withhold forgiveness? The Bible warns us there is a connection in your life between the forgiveness you have received from God and the forgiveness that you show to others. And you forget that connection at your peril. Psalm 103 verses 2 and 3 say this, look, praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. Don't forget this. Don't forget this, the psalmist says. Well, what am I going to forget? You're going to forget the fact that God is the one who forgives all your sins. How could you possibly forget that? Well, Apparently, the psalmist knew you would need this warning. There's a wonderful uh, account of a dinner that Jesus had in Luke chapter 7. He was invited to a man's house. His name was Simon, and he was a Pharisee. And he showed up at Simon's house, and Simon showed him mediocre hospitality. Invited him in, and they sat in in Simon's dining room. And in those days, um, uh, while the... the, uh, during a formal banquet, a formal banquet was a private event, but it was open up to the public so that the hoi polloi, you know, the the rest of us, could come into the room and hear what the uh, rich and famous said to one another. The the common people could come in and and admire the feast and, uh, um, and listen to the luminaries talk. And at this particular dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house, a woman who, Luke says, led a sinful life came in. Many people think she was a prostitute. She came in and she was so moved by what she knew about Jesus and what she knew of him and the forgiveness that he had been speaking of, moved her to tears. She must have been sobbing. Tears, tears, tears. So much, so much tears that she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them dry with her hair. It's a great um, humility, act of humility. Simon the Pharisee is not impressed. He's not impressed with this great act. And, and Jesus says, Simon, do you know why you didn't really show me exorbitant hospitality, but she has shown me exorbitant hospitality? It's because she knows she's a sinner and she knows it and she knows what forgiveness is like and you don't. 
Actually, here's what Jesus says, Luke 7, 47. Look what it says. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Then here's this phrase, this standard Jesus sets down. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. If, if you only have a little bit of sin to be forgiven, you only have a little bit of love. Whoever has been forgiven great loves great there is a connection in your life between the forgiveness that you have received and the forgiveness that you show. You forget that at your peril. Can I suggest to you that one of the reasons that you struggle to forgive is that you've forgotten how much you have been forgiven? I am a 10,000 bag of gold sinner. How can I possibly withhold forgiveness from 100 denarii sinners who sin against me. I have sinned a bajillion dollars worth against God. No human being in comparison has sinned against me more than $30,000 worth of sin. Here's the conversation that takes place in the heart of people that, that get this. You're gonna forgive your husband? Don't you know what he did to you? How can you forgive your husband? How can you forgive your mother for how she treated you all those years? Don't you know what this guy did to you? The, how he, he betrayed you so and defrauded you? You're going to forgive him? How can you possibly do that? And the answer in the heart of the person who has been forgiven much is, how can I possibly withhold forgiveness in light of all, that I, all the forgiveness I have received? Now, scene three, we should move on and then hasten to Jesus' application. Scene three uh, has to do with the just king, the just king. There's other servants who watch what has happened. Uh, the other servants, I think the other servants are there in a nod to Matthew 18, uh, where he talks about church discipline and how the church gets involved in, in unresolved conflict. And, and these other servants, they see what's happened. They're horrified. They go to the king. The king drags the first servant in and he says, what is wrong with you? You wicked, wicked servant. I forgave you so much because you begged me. Should you have not shown mercy to this other servant? And then he threw him in jail to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. Now, there's some people uh, seeing the uh, analogies and the comparison here think that this is a defense of purgatory. That's not what's going on here. Uh, uh, he threw him in jail to be paid, paid back, until he could pay back all he owed, which means forever because you can't pay back a bajillion dollars. Now, it's, this is so closely related to Jesus' application. Let's hasten on again. Jesus' application is the last thing that I want to think about. And verse 35 is worth reading. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. If Here's the question that Jesus raises, I think. If the forgiveness of the debt is an image of forgiveness of sins... And at the end of this parable, the king withdraws the pardon. Is Jesus saying to us here, I'll forgive you, but only if you forgive other people. And if you don't forgive other people, then your forgiveness, forget about it. It's canceled. Is that what Jesus is saying here in this parable? I don't think so. 
forgiveness is a gift, and forgiving other people is not a, a condition of our forgiveness from God, but it is a natural consequence. Receiving forgiveness from God changes you. It changes how you relate to other people. Or to say it another way, one of the signs that you have truly received forgiveness from God is that you, you extend forgiving grace to others. If you are His, if you are truly His, you forgive other people like He forgave you. Sean O'Donnell says, There is nothing, there is no such thing as an unforgiving Christian. Why? Because unforgiving people cannot possibly be Christians. Think about the first servant and his misunderstanding. He did not understand the extent of his debt. And I don't think he understood the extent of the compassion of the king because he said, I'll pay you back. I'll pay you back. No, you can't. You can't. You don't understand. God's forgiveness of us is our standard of our forgiveness of others. And forgiving others is a sign that we have understood and received God's forgiveness. Look at Ephesians 4.32, what it says. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. There's the standard. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. In Matthew 6, this connection between our receiving forgiveness and our giving forgiveness is so tight that in Matthew 6, actually Jesus reverses the order. Look what he says in Matthew 6, 14. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. There's this such tight connection. Receiving God's forgiveness in Christ changes you so much that it makes you a forgiving person. Now, I asked you to think at the beginning about the person in your life that you are struggling to forgive, if there is someone. Maybe you're struggling to forgive them because what they did was just heinous, just almost an unspeakable evil. This parable is, to under, is, is pretty simple to understand. I don't think that by this Jesus is saying to us that forgiveness is simple or easy. Sometimes we have to struggle. We, we fight for this. Maybe you're struggling to forgive that person because you're, you, you have, did they really repent? Maybe it's worth a conversation. I don't, I don't really, I'm not really, I'm struggling to forgive you because I don't really understand. I'm not really sure that you understand how deeply this hurt me. Maybe you need to have a conversation. I can see that. Maybe you're struggling to forgive because you're not sure they don't deserve it. They don't deserve to be forgiven. They don't deserve it. My friend, neither do you. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful for the opportunity to celebrate, sing about, read about, think about your great forgiveness that is offered to us through the Lord Jesus. You and this plan that, that we could never have conceived we could never have done. You sent your son to be 
the substitutionary atonement for our sin. He who offered himself for us on the cross. It's astounding. It's astounding for us to think we who are bajillion dollar sinners have received forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful to you for the warnings in your word about our tendency to forget the wonder of your forgiveness. And we're grateful to you even for this parable that warns us about the the tendency that we have to not forgive, to be stingy. Lord, I do pray that you would remind us and that you would help us. There are some in this room who have experienced grievous evil against them. And there's this call that the Lord Jesus offers. Help us to see ourselves aright before you, great sinners, forgiven sinners, offering forgiveness to others. Help us, Lord. We do pray that in the midst of our struggles at times to forgive and to apologize, we recognize that when the Lord Jesus returns, he'll make all things right. And so we pray with the Apostle John, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray these together in the name of our great Savior, saying, Amen.